0: Second Chronicles 36, 15 to 21. Sorry if you're using the seat Bibles. I don't have the page for you this morning. Before we, we pick up and continue the story, though, I want to say a few words about why this series on the big story of the Old Testament is so important and why it's important that we really understand and keep in mind the big story of the Bible. And here's why, if we could have the first slide. Because if we don't, we can easily wind up with spam instead of meat. (laughs) Let me explain. You can know the Bible without really knowing the Bible. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards. You can memorize and quote verse after verse. But if you don't see the big picture, if you don't follow the storyline, you might have your scriptures all chopped up and repackaged in a different form in a different shape, and so you get spiritual spam instead of spiritual meat. But some of us don't even know the Bible that well, right? There's some of it we don't understand. We come across some verses that are confusing. We come across Bible stories maybe we're not sure we like, And so when we read the Bible, it can be like a bad cell phone connection. We're we're reading, we're we're trying to listen to what God's saying to us, and it's like this. It's like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? And there's, a lot of the signal we're not getting. There are a lot of parts of the scriptures um, that we don't understand. There are some parts we get. There are some verses that we love, but there's a whole lot in between that we don't understand. Or, or maybe it doesn't seem that important or relevant to us. Or, or maybe we're not sure we want to understand it. And what happens when, when we have a verse here and a verse there and a lot in between that, that we don't have, we don't understand, we're not listening to, is that it's like a dot to dot where we don't connect all the dots. L- look at this. The, the Bible's like this. It, it's a very long book. There are, there's a lot there, verse after verse after verse, each one like a dot making the complete picture and at first glance, it may, maybe isn't immediately obvious what it's all about. Any guesses what this is a dot-to-dot of? It's a rabbit, yeah. Some different ideas. I couldn't tell what it was supposed to be until I did it. But, but if, we, if we take care with, with each verse of Scripture and we follow the storyline, eventually it starts to become clear. This is two penguins. Wow. It's more clear if you color it in. So here's the analogy I'm using. This dot to dot represents the big story of the Bible, what it's about, what it means, and it requires taking the whole thing into account. Because here's what's happened if we don't take the whole thing into account. If we just do our dot to dot with the parts we understand, the parts we like, the few verses we've memorized, we wind up with something pretty different. If we could have the next slide, maybe a butterfly. Uh, this is the same dot-to-dot, but some of the dots aren't used. These are the verses that, that sound like static, that we don't really understand or we don't like, and so we skip over them, and the big picture we take away is different, right? Or how about this one? This next one was done with a pretty sophist- by a pretty sophisticated theologian, don't you think? <laughs> again, same dot-to-dot, but again, not taking all of the scriptures, all of the dots into account, not following the storyline. I had fun preparing these (laughs) illustrations, by the way. Um, How about this next one? This is the person who says, all those theologians make it way too complicated. It's really pretty simple. When I add up the dozen or so verses I know, which are the only really important ones, I'm sure, it's just about love. And none of these are quite right, right? They're drawing data from the same source. They're pulling scripture from the same book. But they don't know the storyline, and so they're coming up with a different picture, a different view of God, a different vision of the Christian life, a different theology, a different worldview. And I can tell you there are a lot of these alternative pictures going around these days by the name Christianity. But they aren't the real deal, and that's why it's so important that we know the big story of the Bible, so that we can keep in view the whole picture And the point of the whole scripture, and then we can take each verse, each dot to dot in line along the way as we get to know our scriptures. So with that in mind, let's continue the story. We're following this outline. We could have the next slide. We've looked at creation, how God created a good world, but then it all began to unravel as humans turned away from God and sought to go their own way. And this turning away culminated in in the, the first part of the story at Babel, a.k.a. Babylon, where humanity gathered together to forge a future apart from God. Then we saw how God began to address this situation by calling out a couple, Abraham and Sarah, to live by faith and promising to make them into a people, to give them a land and to bless all nations through them. We saw how God grew Abraham's family into a mighty nation and then rescued them after they'd become enslaved in Egypt and God made a covenant with them at Sinai. God would be their God, present with them. They would be God's people. They would keep God's commands. They would live in God's land, serving as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation as God taught them how to live, a witness to the whole world of the true God and of a different way to live. They would be blessed if they were faithful to God, but if they broke the covenant, if they turned away from God, they would be cursed. And we saw that again and again, they did in fact disobey. Yet God remained faithful to God's covenant with them. God led them into the land God had promised them, even though they lacked faith in God. Well, then in the land, they quickly devolved into pagan, feuding factions, and so God raised up a king and... This king united them, protected them, and led them in being faithful to God. These were what the kings were supposed to do. And God promised to King David, that first king after God's own heart, an unconditional covenant God made with him. That that he would never fail to have a son to sit on the throne over God's kingdom. Yet David's descendants turned away from God. They broke God's covenant again and again. And so we begin today's story facing a tension. On the one hand, God promised to be faithful to his people. But on the other hand, the people were utterly unfaithful to God. They repeatedly and flagrantly broke their covenant with God, rebelling against God. And so what is God going to do? On the one hand, God is compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, as we saw in Exodus 34. But on the other hand, God is also a just administrator of justice in the world. God does not let the guilty go unpunished. Further, on the one hand, God made an unconditional covenant with King David, promising that David will never fail to have a descendant on the throne. Yet on the other hand, God's covenant through Moses laid out curses and consequences for breaking the covenant, for rebelling against God. So how will God resolve this dilemma? Well, in today's chapter of the story, so to speak, we begin to find out. And what we find is that after hundred after hundreds of years of God's people turning away from God to worship other gods, and oppressing the poor, and victimizing the weak, and filling Jerusalem with bloodshed and injustice, and ref- refusing, after the prophets warned them again and again to turn back to God, refusing to change their ways, God could not justify holding back punishment any longer. God's people have violated their covenant with God so repeatedly, so flagrantly, so continually, that God finally brings on them the curses of the covenant. God, who for so long had defended his people and fought on behalf of his people, now turns and fights against his people. God comes at the head of the Babylonian armies and attacks his people and defeats his people, destroying Jerusalem and leading the people into exile in Babylon. And so everything God had built up to this point to save his people, to work through them, to bring salvation to the world, God now tears down. The whole structure God had set up, which was held together by God's covenants with his people, it's all now unraveling and dismantling. Remember this triangle? This key set of relationships which the covenant held together, it all falls apart. God becomes the people's enemy instead of their protector and provider. The land is taken away from the people. God removes the people from it so the land can rest from from the abuse and the oppression the people have been heaping on it and can enjoy the Sabbath rests that the people had denied it. And the people, while they're killed, they suffer, they're taken into exile to a pagan land far away. Further, God's presence leaves the temple, and God's temple is destroyed. The sacrificial system, which provided a way for the people to seek forgiveness for their sins and restoration to God, is brought to an end. The Davidic king is taken from the throne and exiled into Babylon. It's all come apart. It's all come apart. Undone, the curses of the covenant have been visited on the people. This is like the fall back in the Garden of Eden um, all over again. The people are disciplined, they're punished, they're cast out of God's presence, the place God had made for them. They're no longer protected, they're no longer provided for there. And for the people when this happens, it's a huge crisis of faith, it's a huge theological crisis because here's the thing, They don't think they deserve all this. They don't think that what they've done is all that bad. They're so at home. They're so familiar with their sins that for them it's just normal. You could call it normalized disobedience. There's a lot of talk today about normalizing, right? About not normalizing hate, not normalizing bigotry, or on the other hand, not normalizing gender fluidity or gender dysphoria. This word normalizing, whatever your politics... It's a real thing. Once something becomes normal, it no longer seems so wrong. And it had happened to the people back then. And as Christians, we fall prey to it too. For example, do you know how often and how strongly the New Testament speaks against greed and slander? And yet we live in such a greedy culture, such a materialistic culture. We live in such a negative, critical, slandering culture. We don't think these things are such a big deal. After all, we know good people, maybe godly people even, who are greedy. And we don't even see it as greed. And if, if God called us on it, we'd be surprised. Maybe we'd be shocked. What do you, what's the big deal, God? Everyone's doing it, even in church. Well, that's what the people are facing here at the exile. And so they're shocked, they're scandalized that God is passionately against them, that God isn't being faithful to the covenant anymore. And they have a theology which is making it hard to digest and to come to terms with what God is doing here. It's been called Zion theology, though I know Zion theology means different things to different people. But but here's what it meant to the people at the time. It, it It was based on the idea that the covenants, or God's covenant with David, as we saw last Sunday that it's irrevocable, that God would never break it, and that God would always protect Zion, Jerusalem, because the son of David was on the throne there, and God's temple was there, God's presence was there. So how could God possibly, how could Jerusalem possibly be destroyed? God would never let that happen. The king is there, the temple is there, and yet it does happen. And this is a theological crisis. And so they're wondering, is there actually no God? Is God less powerful than we thought? Well, this is where the prophets come in. God sends the prophets to help the people process and come to terms with what God is doing here. And so there are preaching prophets like Ezekiel and and Jeremiah who who speak to the people and they accuse the people of, of breaking their covenant with God. And there are the historian prophets from whom we get the historical books like Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, which tell the story of God's people from God's point of view to explain why the people are in exile, everything that's led up to it, how they violated the covenant, how they've been unfaithful again and again, despite God's faithfulness. And so interestingly, a lot of the Old Testament was was written or it was compiled together during this time of exile. It was collected and treasured through the work of these prophets, these inspired godly people. And these prophets are like covenant lawyers. They're prosecuting attorneys for God who say, No, you are guilty. (laughs) Remember the covenant. It's all in writing. Here's what you committed to do, remember? Here's the consequences if you didn't, remember? And here's how you've rebelled, how you've broken the covenant again and again. And so that's why you're now facing the consequences of your unfaithfulness, the curses of the covenant found in the book of Deuteronomy. And so there's a lot of judgment and condemnation in the prophets. And guess what? The prophets in their day were not popular. Because those who who hold to this Zion theology, especially just as Babylon is moving in and threatening Jerusalem, are, are, are saying to the prophets like Jeremiah, No, we are God's people. This is God's city. How can you be siding with Babylon? How could you even suggest that God is on Babylon's side? You're a traitor, that's what you are. You're against your country. We're God's country. And so Jeremiah especially is persecuted and he's charged with sedition and treason for what he preaches. But he and Ezekiel and others turn out to be the ones who were right. God did not defend Zion. God did let it fall. And so they were proved to be the true prophets of God after the fact. And and there's a warning for us here about not letting our nationalism and our patriotism blind us to what God might be saying, which might be surprising and unexpected. But the prophets aren't all gloom and doom. They also offer hope and comfort and encouragement because God's judgment is not the last word. After all, God did make an unconditional promise to David to always place one of his descendants on his throne and to always be faithful to his people. And so the prophets hold out hope they hold out comfort, particularly for those who remain faithful to God in the midst of this terrible exile. Because while the nation and the kings went astray, all along there were faithful individuals, faithful communities of people who feared God, who loved God, who remained faithful to God, who put their faith in God. They're sometimes called the righteous remnant. And they're suffering along with the rest of the people and they're wondering what is happening? How will this end? is there any hope? And so they need encouragement for their faith to make sense of this and to know how to trust God in the midst of all this. And so the prophets offer them hope. The prophets give them glimpses of the future, of a better future, of a glorious future. The prophets say, even though now everything's falling apart, everything's in darkness and confusion, have faith, have hope, be faithful, because one day God will make a new beginning a future where God puts aside his anger, puts aside this punishment toward the people, and God restores you again as his people in the land. And so the prophets tell the faithful and guide the faithful in how to live in exile. In exile, they're not a people. In exile, they're not in the land. In exile, they have no temple where they can go and be close to God. In exile, they're not governed by a king but rather they're scattered. They're among the great empires of the earth. They're governed, not by a king, but by the word of God spoken through the prophets. And God says through the prophets, watch and see, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to work now, right now, in and through these world empires. They may be pagan. They may even be beastly. They're pictured as vicious and grotesque, oppressive beasts in the book of Daniel. But God is going to use these empires And God is going to use the faithful remnant of his people as witnesses among these empires. And so the question for the remnant is how are we to live in exile among these empires? And the prophets give them three answers. First, it's okay to weep, it's okay to grieve, it's okay to ask questions. We see this in Jeremiah, in Lamentations, in Habakkuk, in the Psalms. Go ahead, God says, I know it's confusing. I know it hurts. It hurts me too, right, parents? It hurts when we discipline our children. But then second, God says, live wisely and faithfully in exile. Make the best of the situation and represent me well there. And so Jeremiah tells the exiles in Jeremiah 29, build houses and settle down. Plant there in B- Babylon. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, Babylon, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord your God for it. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, live your life and be a blessing right where God has planted you. God's doing something bigger here. Go with it. We also see in the book of Daniel, which we looked at earlier this fall, some examples of how to live this out. Some stories, some wisdom for how to live godly lives and to be godly witnesses in exile. When you're a minority and and when the place where you are is not your home. And we Christians today relate to this, right? We feel this way, and so there's great instruction for us here about how to live our lives, not cloistering ourselves off to avoid impurity, but mixing it up with those around us, seeking to be a blessing to others and to impact and influ- influence them for God because God is at work among the nations. Well, then, third, um, the prophet's given an answer about how to live in exile um, which makes the first two answers possible, this third answer. And that's that the prophets give the people hope. They encourage them and they point them toward a bright future. The prophets talk about the day when, when the people of Israel will be restored to the land. Isaiah, in particular, describes this like a new exodus. This time, not from Egypt or from Babylon, but God will come and will set his people, or sorry, this time it's not from Egypt, but rather it's from, ba- to, from Babylon that they're going to receive their exodus. They're going to be brought out. God's going to come and set his people free and bring them back through the desert and settle them again in the promised land. The temple will be rebuilt. God's presence will be among them again. A Davidic king will once again rule over them. But, of course, the question is, why in the world will it work this time? It's never worked before. The people have never been faithful to God's covenant. And the prophets have an answer for this too. God will take care of the people's moral and spiritual weakness and their proneness to sin. God will send a good king, not like so many of the kings after David who led the people astray, but a king like David, a true son of David, who has David's own heart. And God will make a new covenant with the people. And this time, God will send his own spirit into the hearts of his people to give them new hearts, hearts which want to be faithful to God. And so the people will be enabled to love God and be faithful to God. And as a result, they'll indeed be able to be a blessing to the nations and to fulfill their purpose to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and the blessing that they were meant to be. And so Isaiah 2 looks into this future and this hope. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Many peoples will come and say, "'Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob.'" He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. But guess what? As encouraging as that message of hope was, as awesome as that picture of the future was, God had something even more for the prophets who had the faith and the vision to see and believe that God was pointing to something even better than that. That there was an even bigger, brighter future that God had for God's people and for God's whole creation. That God wouldn't only restore his uh, historic people to their historic homeland and fulfill their calling to be a light to the nations there, but God would also restore and renew the whole world. God would would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, and people from all nations would, would become part of the people of God. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. The multitude sleeping in the dust would awake And all God's people would enjoy everlasting life while all God's enemies would be destroyed. And the creation itself would be renewed. The curse of Genesis would be undone. And God would dwell with his people in his creation forever. Wow, and we're still waiting for that, right? (laughs) Well, for the people in exile, it was a distant hope. And in the meantime, they were suffering and they were waiting Jeremiah predicted that their exile would last 70 years. And then the prophetic promises of the new exodus would begin to be fulfilled. And that's what the people are anticipating. It's what they're waiting for at the end of today's chapter of the story. But next week we'll find out. It doesn't turn out the way they expected. (laughs) So as we close for today and as we move through this time of Advent, this time of reflecting and preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ, how does the story speak? speak to you this morning, as it teaches us about God, about how God handles his people, and when, how God handles us when we're unfaithful, and about how God sovereignly oversees the workings of men and nations. Are you all wrapped up in your own life? Is your Christian life about how God can help you succeed in your purposes? Or have you submitted your life to God's purposes? Have you submitted your story to God's story and allowed God to take your life and use it how God wishes as part of God's bigger story, God's bigger purposes for the world? Have you found your place in that story? And how does the story speak to you as it warns us not to allow our sin to be normalized so that we think it must be okay with God because everyone's doing it? Is there something God's spirit has been convicting you and nudging you about lately, but you've been rationalizing, saying, oh, it's not that big a deal. Everyone else is doing it. And what does the story say to us about our patriotism, our our good love of God and country, which nevertheless, if we're not careful, can blind us to God's word, when our sovereign God may have a different view of our nation and other nations and how to best handle international matters in his world? And finally, how is the story speaking to you as it teaches us how to live in exile? With mourning and grief, with tears, also with confident faithfulness that that we're here to bless others, we're we're among the nations to show them our God. And finally, with hope that God has great things planned for those who remain faithful to Him, even in the difficulty and the surrender, suffering, not surrender, but suffering of exile. However God's story is speaking to you this morning, will you take time as you prepare your heart for the coming of Christ to listen and to respond? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave us this story to warn us, to teach us, to correct us, to encourage us, to give us good news, and to point us toward your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts would be fully open to what you want to say to us through it. Amen.